This podcast is brought to you by The Empowerment Project. Research proves that empowerment self-defense training makes you safer, period. I want you to have a great self-defense toolkit so you can create strong boundaries, speak with confidence, and take up all the space that you deserve in the world. We'll hear stories from survivors and find out what worked for them and why. We'll interview leaders in the field and talk about tips, concepts, and really easy things that you could do to make yourself safer and interrupt the cycle of violence. I've taught self-defense classes for over 30 years, and I promise to teach you everything I know. Ultimately, I'm going to want you to get some in-person training, but a great empowerment self-defense class is more than just the physical skills. The list of things I want to teach you is endless, so let's get to it. My name is Sylvia Smart, and welcome to The Empowerment Project. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Today, we're going to talk about victim blaming. You've heard me say that this is something you will never hear me do, not ever. I wanted to explore this concept, flesh it out a little bit, and I thought of my buddy, Catherine White. I have known Catherine for years. I don't even know how many, but decades. Catherine and I trained martial arts together, and Catherine became a self-defense instructor too, and she has taught for ages. I think of her as an empowerment self-defense geek just like me. When I was mulling over this concept, victim blaming, like how did I want to approach it, I thought of Catherine because her knowledge about these topics. It's wide and it's deep. So I reached out and asked if she'd be willing to come onto the Empowerment Podcast by Naga and just talk with you and me about it. And she said she would, and she's here. I'm so grateful that Catherine is here to share her knowledge and understanding about victim blaming with us. We're going to talk about what it is, how it came about, why it's so awful, and why as empowerment self-defense instructors, we do not do it. And we don't want you to do it either. So without further ado, welcome, Catherine. I am so glad you're here. Thank you so much for such a nice introduction. And yes, we have known each other for many, many years. Um, I've taught self-defense for over 20, and and I'm definitely a self-defense geek like you. In fact, one thing that many people don't know is that for most of the 1980s, I actually volunteered for um, the sexual assault hotline in Portland, which was then known as the Portland Women's Crisis Line. It's now called a call to safety. And so I've taken a lot of calls and spent a lot of time with survivors of violence besides having my own experiences with it. And um, it's really shaped my life and my work for sure. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, that wisdom and the the knowledge. Really appreciate it. Let's dive right in. What is victim blaming, Catherine? Like, how would you describe it? What is it? Who's affected? Like, just kind of a little description. What is victim blaming? Well, at its most basic, it's really, it's an attitude that holds a victim or survivor um, partially or completely responsible for the actions of the perpetrator. And it sounds crazy. Um, and in fact, I would you be willing to share your example again? Because I love your podcast. I've listened to a lot of them. And I heard you give an example that kind of shows how ridiculous it is. I will. Yeah. So the example that I give in my classes is that victim blaming is kind of like this. So say my husband, Jeff, is wandering around downtown and he gets mugged. 
someone reaches around and grabs him and grabs his wallet and runs. Victim blaming is me would be, here's an example, would be me saying, so, well, what did you expect? Why did you have your wallet in your pocket? Of course it's going to get stolen. That's ridiculous. And that's my example because it's so ridiculous. Of course you can walk around with your wallet in your pocket. <laughs> right. And yeah, and so we could see in that example how it really doesn't make sense. And yet think about the questions we ask survivors of sexual assault. You know, why were you dressed like that? Why did you go there by yourself? Why did you date him? You know, were you drink him? Were you nice to him? What, did you kiss him? What did you expect? That is such a common response to survivors of sexual assault. So I think it's important to look at why we blame people for their own misfortune and why we're more likely to do it in some situations than in others. Which is a great segue to my next question. That's, that's exactly what victim blaming is. And those questions that we ask survivors, they're just ridiculous, but we do, we do it all the time. But what, mm -hmm. why do you think people blame victims? Like why is victim blaming even a thing? Well, I do think, you know, there's, there is a lot of suffering and injustice in the world and people look for ways to explain it, to understand it, to rationalize it. And one thing that people have done, you know, forever is, they, there's a thing called the just world theory, and it's a way of understanding the world that helps those kind of things make sense to solve the problem. And it's where people um, believe that we live in a just universe, and so people get what they deserve. And so in this just world, bad things don't happen to good people. So victims must be at least partially responsible for their own suffering. And in this sense, like victim blaming, it really becomes a coping mechanism to reduce feelings of guilt about, um, you know, our own responsibility to, to engage and help solve these problems and feelings of fear about our own vulnerability. And I think when it comes, you know, to reducing fear, that's a big part of the women, why women blame other women in sexual assault situations. And, you know, I think that the higher the stakes are, the more we want to believe that we can control the outcome. So in the example that you gave, the idea of being pickpocketed, I mean, while it's, it would certainly be uncomfortable and upsetting, it's not as fearful a situation as the thought of being raped. And since sexual violence is so much more frightening, we have a greater investment in thinking that the victim's responsible. And so if I follow certain rules or have certain attitudes and beliefs, then it won't happen to me. So it helps reduce these feelings of guilt and reduce fear in the short run. But in the long run, it has really dangerous and devastating consequences. Well, let's talk about that. So aside from the obvious stuff, like making life harder for anyone who has had to deal with sexual assault, what are some of the risks of continuing this thing that we do of blaming the victim? Well, I mean, there's a, a number of ways in which it's really harmful. It It is kind of a roadblock for people healing from sexual assault. It certainly keeps predators on the street, which continues to create risk for women and children mostly. And um, in the big picture, it really, you know, I think we should get to this at some point today. I mean, it interferes with, you know, really creating the just world that we're working towards. Um, 
So there's a lot of ways in which it's very damaging and we could kind of go through each of them. Yeah, let's. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I think, you know, to understand how victim blaming works and first of all, like looking at how it tends to keep offenders uh, on the street and not being held accountable, it's important to really look at it in the context of the sexist culture that we live in. I mean, given that most perpetrators of sexual assault are men and most survivors are women, and given that men still predominantly hold positions of power, you have a system where it's really not unusual for the person in power to potentially find it easier to identify with the male perpetrator than with the female victim. And the Brock Turner case, uh, which this was in 2015, it's a perfect example of this. 2015, Brock Turner um, was a student at Stanford University. He was convicted of raping an unconscious schoolmate. And this is a crime that carries a sentence of up to 14 years in prison. Turner was given a sentence of six months in the county jail. And in his statement, when the judge sentenced him, he really appeared more concerned with the impact that the crime had had on the life of the perpetrator than the survivor. And I think this judge's inability to understand the gravity of his crime and to hold him accountable really highlights the danger um, of the myth about who an offender is, which is part of the whole victim-blaming scenario. We buy into certain myths about who is an offender and who ends up being attacked. And these keep the victim blaming um, sort of, they all work hand in hand together. Yeah, totally. And I want to talk about the perpetrator in just a second. But I've recommended Chanel Miller's book, Know My Name, before here on this podcast, and I'm going to recommend it again. I was especially moved by listening to her read it herself. It was incredible to hear her tell her story in her own words. And it it's the exact, you know, that is the the story that you just told. Brock Turner was her perpetrator. But let's talk about perpetrators for a second. I, I think it's important to understand how they operate. Could you talk about that? Well, I mean, first of all, let's think about, you know, the idea of who what we think of as a sex offender, as a perpetrator. I mean, I think all of us kind of still in the back of our minds see that creepy guy like, you know, hiding in the bushes in the dark, right? I mean, I, I can still have that vision, but in fact, that is not who the perpetrator is. More than 85% of the time, women and children are attacked by someone they know. Um, offenders are likely that neighbor, the coworker, a spiritual leader, a teacher, someone we're dating. And, you know, sex offenders, they are masters of deceit and disguise. They know how to fit in. They look like us. They can act like us, but they aren't like us. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And we see this crazy stranger myth, I think, because from the just world point of view, it is really hard to reconcile that someone who seems like a good person you know, that friendly neighbor, the boyfriend, the guy in math class, the family member, other trusted member of the community, that that person that we can so identify with could be so capable of committing an act as monstrous as a rape. It's easier to see the predator as the embodiment of evil and not someone we know. And I think that that is really the trap that um, the judge fell into in the Brock Turner case. He could identify with that perpetrator. 
You know, this guy was well-spoken, privileged athlete, college student, so much potential. I would bet that judge looked back and saw himself, and he found it impossible to believe that this person he could identify with could do something so monstrous. But he did do it, and he may well do it again. You're exactly right on. And I, you know, just because this is a college case, I just want to throw in another plug for the book Sexual Citizens for my listeners who, if you haven't read it yet, please do, especially moms and dads, because it's a book that you want to be reading. It's about sexual assault on college campuses, but it's a book you want to be reading well before your kids are ready for college. Like as soon as they're potty training, you got to read this book. So it's just because you brought that up, I wanted to mention this book again, but back, sorry about that, my little tangent, back to victim blaming. Could you talk about your own experience, especially the the pieces of it that you've shared with me about the judicial system and victim blaming and how that works? From my own experience, I, I was raped in 1990. Uh, I was walking my dogs at a public park in the middle of the day, and I was attacked. Um, and I after I survived that attack, I, from the very park that I was at, I called the police. And the first thing the detective asked me when he got there was, why was I walking down there by myself? And, you know, I, the first thing I thought was, oh, gosh, I don't know. Why was I? Oh my I mean, you're so traumatized and it immediately right. starts you second guessing and blaming and doubting. And so it's really understandable that survivors are hesitant to report sexual assault in a judicial system that they are afraid will blame them or not believe them or not follow through. And statistics show that rape for these reasons is a seriously underreported crime um, and underprosecuted. Only about 75% of rapes go unreported. So that means only about 25% ever even get reported. And of those, maybe half are prosecuted and a small percent end up being convicted. And at the end of the day, only 6% of rapists ever spend a day in jail. So it's a system that is really failing to protect us. And one of the reasons, a big part of the reason, is, is that blame and that shame that starts right at the beginning of the process of holding the victim responsible for the harm that was done to her. Totally. Because it reinforces all of that, what you were talking about, like, did I do something wrong? Oh my gosh, I must have done something wrong. I must, you know, I must be wearing the wrong thing or I must have said the wrong thing or I did kiss him. And so he must have expected it. So all of those things are the shame and the blame are heartbreaking and infuriating. And this is why we don't blame the victim because it's re-traumatizing. Mm -hmm. It is. I mean, when you think about, you know, how hard it is, it's it's a crime that, you know, well, many other crimes like having your, you know, wallet stolen or your car stolen and, and it's inconvenient and it's expensive and it's upsetting and it may create some level of fear. But rape is a very different crime. I mean, it in itself, it's so personal and so disempowering that um, it, it, it creates shame and it's meant to. I mean, the real purpose of the perpetrator is to have power and control, and he accomplishes that through shaming and humiliating the survivor. 
Um, and I feel like it's easy when we talk about victim blaming to use the word victim so much. And, and yet, it, you know, really, it's about surviving. And I'm going to try to switch my language here to survivor because that, that is who we are. Right. Right. That's where the empowerment comes in, Claim, reclaiming your body, reclaiming your physical space, reclaiming your strength and your mind and your, your sense of self. So I want to talk about how we stop victim blaming, you know, what are the things that our society has to come to terms with to figure out, to learn about. Um, But before we do, is there anything else you want to say about victim blaming that we haven't covered so far that you think is important for listeners to think about and be aware of? Oh, the first thing it, I need to understand in order to begin healing is that it is it is not my fault and that I am not alone. And when I really can take in those two things, that's where the healing begins. And victim blaming really derails that. But another thing is it really puts us in danger um, in terms of assessing and responding to risk because it undermines our ability to like really respond to immediately our natural instincts and intuition that tells us when something is dangerous. And we could talk about how that works for a few minutes if you would like to. Yeah, let's do that. Let's talk about that since you brought it up. So, I mean, basically, um, our intuition is our first line of self-defense. I mean, it is Uh, that ability to know something without knowing why. Um, It's the gut feeling that we have. I mean, everybody has it. And it it is our very number one source of risk assessment. And the thing is, when Um, So basically what's happening is our intuition is um, picking up all kinds of information all the time. It's like our unconscious. And so when we're in a situation that's dangerous, there is a lot of often quite a bit of evidence there. But our slow, logical, linear mind maybe isn't processing it fast enough. But our intuition is and it sets off the alarm that says something's not right. And all of us have felt it, that gut feeling, you know, the palms get sweaty, the breath gets um, more rapid, you know, the hair stands up on the back of our neck. That is that information saying something's not right. There is a great story from the book, The Gift of Fear, that um, by Gavin De Becker that really illustrates this. Um, and in the story, there's a man, Robert Thompson. He drives past a convenience store that is in his neighborhood. He stopped there many times, decides to pull in and just buy a couple of magazines. And as he's walking in the door, he's suddenly just overcome with this fearful feeling that something's not right. And he just turns right around and gets in his car and drives away. And he finds out later that right after he left, a police officer walked in that store inadvertently and was shot and killed in the middle of an armed robbery. So he's wondering, how could I have known that something wasn't right? Um, I I can't think of any evidence. And so Gavin DeBecker helps him go through the scenario again. And in fact, there was one car parked in the parking lot. And the engine was running and someone was at the driver's seat. And what he knew is that, and you know, um, convenience stores tend to be robbed when there's no one else in there. So there was one person in there. The store was basically empty. He knew that in the back of his head. As he's walking to the door, he sees a man with a heavy coat 
and it's a very warm day. It's out of context. It doesn't make sense. And as he starts to open the door, the clerk, instead of sort of responding with a smile or, you know, a welcoming or a curiosity, just gives him a furtive glance and is really staring at this guy with the coat on. And none of these things registered with him at the time. He just got a feeling that something wasn't right. And he listened to it and he followed it and it probably saved his life. You know, all of this evidence is there and our intuition is just telling us, you know, pay attention. There's a risk here. If we are so caught up in believing that, you know, nothing could ever happen to me because I do all the right things. I don't dress like that. I don't, you know, it's not the middle of the night. This person seems like such a nice person. If Robert Thompson had just said to himself, oh, I'm just exaggerating and making a big deal out of nothing, then... Um, we're less likely to listen to that intuition. And what we're doing then is denying the threat. And if intuition is our biggest asset, denial is our biggest liability. It costs us valuable time where we could potentially respond to a threat and um, be out of the situation before anything even escalates. Totally. I think when both you and I teach about intuition in our self-defense classes, we talk about uh, the role of 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 intuition, how denial keeps us from believing ourselves, from trusting ourselves. And and we probably both also talk about the role of socialization and how that can get in the way of trusting ourselves, which really kind of hooks into that denial. Could you talk about that? Yeah, well, Miss Magazine did a study in the 80s, and I often refer to this when I'm teaching, you know, about the importance of intuition. And they talked to hundreds of women that had been assaulted and found that almost all of them felt that something wasn't right before anything obvious happened, before they were attacked. And they didn't stop the interaction. And the reasons they gave was that they didn't want to be rude, they didn't want to be wrong, and they didn't want to make a scene. They denied the threat because they wanted to be nice. And when we feel locked into prescribed socialized behavior, denial is often our go-to response. We don't want to rock the boat. We so want everything to be okay. And so we say to ourselves, well, this can't be happening to me because he doesn't look like an offender. The myths about who an offender is, you know, he seems too nice to, I trust him. I've dated him. He isn't who I perceive the bad guy to be. Or he doesn't fit my idea of who a victim is. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not dressed provocatively. I'm not out in, in the middle of the night. I'm not at a bar. We're implying that the people who are attacked have done something to deserve it. And so we talk ourselves into thinking um, this sort of false sense of safety instead of really taking in what's happening in the moment and understanding that that is reality. That is what the truth is. And that these other things just... Um, you know, impede our ability to see the truth. So I'm just going to say to the listeners, do you see why I wanted to talk to Catherine about victim blaming? Because your perspective is so right on and you're so good at pulling all the different pieces of it together. And, you know, what I want to, I'm, and yes, to everything you just said, I am really interested in hearing you talk a little bit about this perspective that you have on victim blaming as it fits into this concept of just world, the just world kind of paradigm. Can you first 
tell us what that is because I don't know. I don't think I'd ever heard about it before and or put it in that way. And then can you also tell us how that relates to victim blaming? So from this just world point of view, bad things don't happen to good people. The world is a just and fair place. And so if people are suffering, they must have done something to cause their own suffering. And since many people sort of kind of inadvertently buy into that, the desire to sort of maintain smooth social interactions, it fuels this fallacy of a just world. You know, I don't want to remind anyone that, you know, I might be at fault. You might be at fault. You know, this person next to you might not be who you think they are. The world might not be falling into place in in quite this perfect way that that we would like it to be. So the implications really reach beyond our own individual well-being, our own individual ability to assess risk. It this fallacy really systematically threatens basic human rights, because while some human suffering is unavoidable. Poverty and oppression are constructed and maintained by societal norms and attitudes. And from a just world point of view, you know, people who are like, for instance, financially secure, well, they must have earned it. And people who are poor deserve it. People who are poor are lazy. They're unwilling to work. We blame the victim in order to alleviate guilt and our own sense of vulnerability. So the facts about poverty tell a really different story. The majority of people who are poor, who are able to work, do work. And even though they're working, currently more than 10% of the U.S. population lives under the poverty line. And another 30% lives right above it. That means 40% of the people in this country are financially insecure all the time. And people of color are twice as likely to be poor. 25% of single mothers are poor. The obvious lie inherent in the just world belief is that the playing field is level and that race, gender, and where you come from don't matter. But in fact, the biggest determining factor for being poor is being born poor. In fact, women and people of color are paid less, promoted less, and often expected to do more and work harder than their white male counterparts. And I guess I'd like to sort of illustrate all of this with a, it's a scenario that I put forward when I teach self-defense and to sort of think about victim blaming and what it means and really that there's no way ever under any circumstances is can you call a person responsible for the harm that somebody else has caused them. So let's just say that I'm at a party and I drink way too much and I start taking off my clothes and I'm dancing on the tabletop and right there, people at that party, they have choices. They could decide I'm crazy and walk away. Someone could see that I was vulnerable and get me a coat and a cab and make sure I get home safely. Someone could see that I'm vulnerable and choose to rape me. And if that person chooses to rape me, he is a sex offender. He is no different than the man that dragged me off the trail in that park that morning, and he should be held accountable. And as for the people that walked away, Well, they're not directly responsible for my rape, but they saw I was vulnerable and they didn't do anything. And they may well ask later, 
What did she expect? So we all make decisions we regret. And these decisions do not justify under any circumstances someone hurting us, and they shouldn't cost us our life. That is the bottom line here, because the hard truth is we are all vulnerable. Most of us good people are only one misstep away from disaster. The loss of a job, a catastrophe, you know, an illness, an accident, a fire, earthquake, any one of these things could change everything. Victim blaming may protect us from feeling vulnerable in the moment, but it robs us of the important part of our humanity, which is empathy. And empathy is the difference between being the person who helps and the one that walks away. And that, I think, is really core to us changing our thinking about that the world is fair, that people get what they deserve, that if I follow a certain set of rules, I'll be okay. Because bottom line, the world isn't fair. Advantages and abilities aren't distributed evenly, and bad things happen to good people. But the world could be more just. And justice requires honesty and empathy. The lie of victim blaming does not explain away suffering. It causes it. Justice requires that we hold ourselves and each other's accountable for the harm that we cause, and it requires the courage to act in our own behalf. And when we reject victim blaming 100% all the time and the lies that it demands, we begin to lean towards a more just world. Amen, sister. <laughs> Preach it. That was way too much talking. I feel ridiculous. <laughs> You're so funny. No, that oh was so awesome. God. So much blathering. Uh, you could you know, you cut out whatever you want to. She's like, oh my God, who is she? And why doesn't she stop? <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Like, this is why I wanted you to talk about this because your perspective is nuanced. It's, you've done a ton of research and reading. You've had personal experience. You teach this. You've thought about it a ton. And you have a lot to say about it and stuff that is good to hear. And yeah, we are all vulnerable. And when we blame the victim, it means we don't have to think about our own vulnerability and, and we don't have to reach out with empathy to others and with understanding. And yeah, so thank you for all of the things that you said. Well, thank you for having me. It was really nice to have this conversation. It's been a while since we've been in this lockdown, since I've been able to really teach and talk about this issue that's so important. And it was wonderful to get a chance to connect with you. I loved it. I loved it. And um, I think that I can speak for you as well as myself and just say, okay, no more, no more victim, victim blaming. blaming. Not <laughs> Ever, not, not ever, ever, period. period. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Catherine. Well, thank you for having me and we'll stay in touch. It's affirmation time. This is how I end every self-defense class. It's kind of cheesy, but it's very cool. And this is how it works. We're going to do like a little call and response. If you can say this out loud, if you can repeat after me, 
do it because it's important, I think, for you to hear your own voice. But if you can't, like if you're on a crowded subway or someplace where it's embarrassing, don't worry. You can also just say it inside your head. Okay, so I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat it after me. I'm going to give you space to do that. And at the end, we're going to say yes. Here we go. Repeat after me. I am worth protecting. I love myself. I belong. I deserve to take up space on planet Earth. I am a strong and powerful person. Yes! Woohoo! And hey, as a wrap up, will you do me a favor? Will you do all the things that you do when there's a podcast? Like, will you tell your friends? Will you subscribe? Will you come back each week? Communicate with me? Review this podcast? Like, all those things to help get more bandwidth, help more people find out about it. That would be super awesome. Take a deep breath. You are amazing. Thank you for being with me. See you next time.